Well, I hope you had a smoother drive coming in this morning than we had last week. It was a bit slick and slippery last week. I've mentioned before that this 100 meters from Victoria to the parking lot of Woodland on Spitzig is, is a gamble every time there's snow on the roads. It's just a little bit sketchy at times. Uh, but today it's nice, but we are approaching the season of slips and falls, of treacherous driving. And we learn this lesson every year. It's like we forget, but then winter comes and we learn the lesson that ice is incredibly destabilizing. When I was working as a firefighter, uh, uh, we, once you've been on for two years, at least in Waterloo, you start driving the truck, which is cool, right? Driving fire trucks is fun. And so you start driving the fire truck, but my first year driving the fire truck was, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this right, that it was in 2013, and there was a major ice storm. Uh, You may remember this, there was lots of power outages, and it lasted for quite a long time, but it it was this big ice storm, and I was scheduled to drive that day. And there's lots of calls, you're running around, and you just sort of accept when you're driving a fire truck in an ice storm, it's just gonna take you longer to get to things. And so we had this one call. I can't even remember what the call was, but we were responding to this in this residential area. It was this really nice area in northwest Waterloo, this kind of wooded uh, area where these houses are kind of tucked back in this little forested area. And as we were driving to this call, and it was just beautiful, right, because the ice, you know, when the the ice sticks to everything and all the tree branches are covered in ice, you know the look, right? So it's, it's beautiful, and we're in this nice neighborhood, and my captain says to me, it's really nice back here. And I was surprised by that, because he's one of those grumpy fire captains, that he wouldn't really say something. I was like, it is nice back here. It's a nice neighborhood, the ice on the trees. Well, I learned he did not say, it's really nice back here. He said, it's really icy back here. And I only learned that he had said that when we were sliding down in the fire truck, which is a 40-foot-long, 50,000-pound truck worth over a half a million dollars, sliding down the road perpendicular to the roadway in this residential area. So I'm just completely sideways, and we're, we're going down the road. And, and he's yelling at me because he said, I warned you, it's, it's icy back here. And I was like, I thought you said it was nice back here. And we're sliding down the road sideways. And there's two kinds of sliding when you drive. You know this, right? There's sort of like the Tokyo Drift style sliding where you still have a bit of control and you're feeling it. Then there's the kind of sliding, which is what we were experiencing that day, where you could turn your wheel, you could floor it, step on the gas, you could step on the brake, and nothing changes. You're just moving. You're at the... Yeah, the mercy of physics. And I always wondered if, I wonder if someone looked out their window that day uh, and just looked outside and, wow, what a beautiful ice uh, storm morning. It's just the spark, sun sparkling off. And then all of a sudden this fire truck just goes down the road completely sideways. In that moment, I was absolutely out of control. We were going slow, but there was absolutely nothing I could do. Again, I said we were at the mercy of physics. And I just had nothing left. I was completely destabilized. And although it might have looked peaceful as it was going down the truck, we were all yelling and screaming in the truck. Uh, But I had completely lost control. Now, the end of the story is not that dramatic. There was no harm done. We just slowly came to a stop uh, and didn't hit anything. It was quite miraculous. And by nothing I did. Uh, We just slowly happened to be on one of those big corners where we were just lucky. We just stopped. But I was completely destabilized. And life can be a lot like that for us. It doesn't take much in our lives to feel like we are sliding completely out of control. 
not like we're barely holding on and we're, we're drifting our way around the corners of life. I mean completely out of control, where we are completely destabilized. Whether it's conflict or stress or circumstances or a diagnosis you weren't expecting, we can be destabilized very easily. And often the most destabilizing things in our lives are the things that are most out of our control. Often they're, they're the things that people say about us can destabilize, destabilize us in ways that, that other things simply can't. Whether they say it to our face or behind our back. If somebody gossips or slanders us, gossips about us or slanders us, we can feel completely out of control. Because you know how the saying goes, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones and words hurt like crazy. I think that's, I think that's the true part of the, the story. Because when people say things about us, we can be completely destabilized. There's nothing we did to, to cause it, and so we are completely out of control. Well, Psalm 26 that we'll be looking at this morning is a psalm of David where we don't know the circumstances. But he is facing some circumstances in his life where he feels like he is being swept away or he could be swept away, where he is destabilized, where things could be out of control. At least that's the circumstance around the psalm. But what we get is this ringside seat as we read Psalm 26 of how to respond when we feel destabilized. We get a ringside seat of the right response when we're destabilized. When life spins out of control, Psalm 26 shows us where David goes to find the sure footing that he needs. And so the big idea from Psalm 26 as we work through this passage is when life is unstable, God's grace is the sure footing that we need. When life is unstable, God's grace is the sure footing that we need. And as we work through this psalm, we're going to see three lessons of what to do when life feels unstable. When life is unstable, we need to pray for vindication. We'll find that in verses 1 to 3. When life is unstable, we need to pursue holiness. We'll see that in verses 4 through 8. And when life is unstable, find your footing in God's grace. We'll see that in verses 9 through 12. And we need to learn this. We need this lesson. Because if you're here, you likely know the feeling of being destabilized. Of of being swept away. Of feeling like you're spinning out of control. Maybe you are here this morning and you feel like you are sliding down the road of life perpendicular to the way you should be going and you're completely out of control. And if neither of those things are true where you haven't experienced that and you're not experiencing that today, uh, I'm happy for you, but I have bad news that there will be a time in your life where you will feel this way. And so we need Psalm 26. We need God's word to teach us how to respond when life is unstable. And so would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, God's holy, true word. Psalm 26 of David. Vindicate me, O Yahweh, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in Yahweh without wavering. Prove me, O Yahweh, and try me, test my heart and mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. 
I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Yahweh, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Yahweh, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. So lesson number one. When life is unstable, pray for vindication. As we approach lesson number one, we've got to ask question number one, which is, what on earth does vindication mean? I looked it up. It's a desire to be cleared of blame. A desire to be cleared of blame. So kids, imagine you have... In your house, there's this beautiful white carpet. It's your mom's favorite rug. And all of a sudden, there's this big uh, grape juice stain right in the middle of it. And you didn't do it. And you really didn't, honestly. It wasn't you. But then someone comes to you and blames you and says, it was you. In that moment, what you want is the desire to be cleared of blame. What you want in that moment is vindication. That's what vindication means. The desire to be cleared of blame when you are innocent of what you're being accused of. So David here is praying for vindication. Vindicate me, O Yahweh, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in Yahweh without wavering. Here he's praying for vindication. He's not claiming, this is important, he's not claiming sinlessness. He's claiming integrity. He's not claiming sinlessness, but integrity. Because we know he's not a sinless man. And we know he knows that he's not a sinless man. But in this situation, whatever he's being accused of, whatever situation he's facing, he's saying, I have walked in my integrity. I haven't wavered. It's not just that he's saying he hasn't wavered. This is important too. He's saying, I have trusted in Yahweh without wavering. It's not the strength of his grip that he's appealing to here. It's the strength of the one that he holds on to. The one in whom he trusts. And he keeps going in verse 2. Prove me, O Yahweh, and try me. Test my heart and mind. These words prove and test, they carry imagery of, of refinement, of, of literal refining, of silver and gold. And that's done through melting. And as you melt down these precious metals, uh, it exposes the impurities that you can clean out. And so he's calling on God. He's saying, refine me, prove me, test me, try me. He is coming to God completely exposed. And in this moment, when I read verses like this, and maybe you feel the same, you, you think, man, I don't think I have the courage or the boldness to go to God with that kind of language, to to call out to him and say, vindicate me, for I have walked in my integrity. The thing is, God already knows. We think it takes a level of boldness to go to God and say, here, look at all of me, try me, test me. But the reality is God already knows everything. 
And this is both a comforting and a terrifying thought. It can be comforting if we think of God in a certain way, and it can be terrifying if we think of God in a certain way. Coming completely exposed. Because imagine your entire life, however long you've lived at this point, imagine your life story was projected on this projector. This is a new projector. It's a little crisper than it's been in previous months. Uh, and so it's projecting in nice HD. Imagine your whole life story was projected right here. And the room capacity, I meant to check on the way in. There's a sign. I think it's 550 people in this room you can fit in here, according to the fire code. Imagine 550 of your closest family and friends and coworkers and everybody was invited into this room. 550 of them jammed in up in the little balcony areas and they were looking at your life story on this projector. And in this life story, everything is projected. It is a complete and truthful account of your life. Everything that you've ever said, done, or even thought. Projected right here. Nothing edited out. Everything there to see in HD for 550 of your closest family and friends. I would imagine there are many parts that you would be proud to show. Proud to display. Maybe relationships, achievements, acts of generosity or kindness. But I would imagine there are thousands of things that you would not want seen. Sections that Nobody knows, not even your best friend, not even your family members. It's a horrifying thought that our life would be displayed like that for other people to see. At least it is for me. Because you wonder, how, how would people react? Would they even be able to look me in the eyes? And so that's why this can be a troubling thought, to go to God completely exposed and say, try me, test me, prove me, vindicate me. Because we are essentially going and saying, here's my projection of my life. I'm in your hands. The thing is, God sees all of these things anyways. But when we face the instability of trials and suffering or slander, we fail to go to God for vindication. Because we have a distorted view of who he is. We fail to go to God because we have a distorted view of who he is. If our life was projected up for God to see, if we see God as a a heavenly dictator who rules with an iron fist, we'll be afraid to go to him. If we see God as this disappointed father who is surprised at our, our wickedness and our disobedience, right? if we see God as this aloof a heavenly being, we won't go to him for vindication. When we have a distorted view of God, we fail to go to him. Well, David's view is very different than that. You see it in verse 3. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. That's David's view of God as he stands there completely exposed before him. This is the key to understanding verses like this, where where David or a psalmist or throughout all of Scripture calls out to God for vindication, a right view of God. 
We need to keep God's steadfast love before our eyes. We've talked about this word, uh, the, the Hebrew word that, that goes for this steadfast love. I don't have to make a big deal about you know, the, the language that it's in, but this is one Hebrew word that is worth knowing, hesed. It is steadfast love. This is God's covenant love for his people, his promise-making love. We have uh, distorted views of love. Uh, we use the word love for a lot of things. I love my wife, I love swimming, and I love ketchup. Right? All those statements are true. But I mean different things when I say those things. And when we think of God, if we say, I've always kept your steadfast love in front of me. If we have a wrong view of God's love, that it's something as uh, weak and fluffy and fickle as my love of ketchup, that has no holding power when we think of God's love. So when we have a distorted view of God's love, we will fail to go to him for vindication. We will fail to go to him even in any kind of prayer. And so this is the key, that God knows us. He sees us. We stray, we wander, we rebel against his authority. Every time we sin, God knew this, and God knows this, and he loves us still. That, that's crazy, right? If you imagined your life projected up there, every single thing you've ever done, thought, said, and someone said, I commit to love you anyway, 100%. It won't change a thing on how much I love you. That, that's hesed. That's covenant promise-keeping love. That's a fierce commitment to a promise that's been made. Now, God hates sin, but he loves his children. And he's committed to loving us perfectly. And so when life is unstable, we need to go to God. And remember that it's God who loves us. We need to go to him for vindication. Not hoping that he woke up on the right side of the bed and that he just happens to be in a good mood and gives us a pass that day. But because he promises to hear us. And so when you face the sting of living in a fallen world, pray for vindication. Pray that God will make things right. He is in the business of restoration. Keep his steadfast love before your eyes and walk in his faithfulness. But what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in his faithfulness? What does it mean to walk in integrity? Well, that's lesson number two for us this morning. Lesson number two, when life is unstable, pursue holiness. Keeping God's steadfast love before our eyes is not a ticket to live however you want. It's not just the get-out-of-jail-free card of God's love. It's just because his love is unconditional doesn't mean we can just do whatever we want. We are called to imitate God, to pursue holiness. And David's integrity that he talks about throughout this psalm is this pursuit of holiness. This pursuit of, of being set apart. That's what we mean when we say holy. Something that's holy is set apart. And so for us, pursuing holiness involves saying both no and yes. Avoiding certain things, pursuing others. Hating some things and loving others. We see this in verses 4 and 5. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. 
I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. We see in those first few verses I read there that to, to sit with someone is not just to be present with them. That's not the application here. Don't sit with bad people. But to sit with them, we saw this back in Psalm 1, that to sit with someone was, was to align yourself with them. We see that word consort in verses 4. That's to associate. And so to, to, to say, I, I won't be with these people, is saying, I, will, I won't be with these people. David is refusing to be grounded in wickedness. He knows how unstable and unsteady that ground is. But this forces us to ask an important question of application. Is this a passage that's teaching us, well, just don't hang out with non-Christians? Is that what it is? What about our friends? What about our family members? What about our coworkers? No, that is not the application point from this passage. The Bible is clear. That is not the way we are. We are not called to live to just isolate in communes and not uh, be with the world. But the Bible is clear about how we are to be careful in the way that we live. We are to ask the question, who and what is influencing me? Who and what is influencing you? We talk often about children being like sponges, soaking up the culture and the world that they are exposed to. And that's true. Uh, but we can sort of disconnect the idea that, that the same is true for adults. We might be slightly less absorbent uh, than children, but certainly whatever or whoever we let into our lives will have a significant influence on our life. And so we need to be careful. But this is really important, and I want you to, to hear this. This is a good takeaway, a really important takeaway, because this is easily misunderstood. I'm not saying that because Christians are so strong, so good, and so holy, they shouldn't associate with certain kinds of people or certain kinds of things. I'm actually saying the complete opposite. Because I am so weak, I am so weak, I need to be careful. I am prone to wander. I am prone to leave the God I love. And so this is incredibly important that we don't get this wrong. That it's not, I'm so good, I'm so set apart, therefore I, I, I'm too good for these other people. It is the complete opposite. And I am, I'm just so weak. Because sin is like cigarette smoke. It sticks to everything it touches. And if you think that you can play in the mud and not get dirty, you are either way stronger than me and every other person that I've ever met and every person in the Bible, or you've fallen for the lie that you are stronger than you are. And so what are you letting seep into the fabric of your life? What relationships steer you away from from God and not to him. Maybe it's a friendship with a popular person in school or at work that you know is toxic. Maybe you want to date that beautiful person, but you know that they don't know God and there's no way that they're going to actually steer you towards God in that relationship. Maybe it's your entertainment choices. If you look at the video games you play, the Netflix shows you watch, whatever else you consume, do those things demonstrate a love for good? Or have you become so desensitized that you love what is evil? 
you are entertained by what is wicked. This is not easy. This is a call of daily discipleship, of dying to self. A daily act of putting off your old self and putting on a new self. It's a pursuit of holiness. And so look at your life. Do the people, places, and patterns in your life point you to God or away from him? Because when you face unstable footing in life, the answer surely is not to keep slipping around in the muck and the mire. It's finding sure footing in God. And so it's what David does in this psalm. In verses 6 through 8, he says, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Yahweh, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds, O Yahweh, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Rather than sitting with men of falsehood, he is committed to joyfully proclaiming truth. Pursuing holiness means being devoted to God, uh, to worship and to fellowship with Yahweh. And so a question, how can we do this? How do we do this today? How do we pursue holiness? I mean, so many ways. Even this morning, how can we pursue holiness that, he, that David's talking about here? He talks about proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, telling of all of God's wondrous deeds. We can do that in all sorts of ways. We can do that in, in talking to each other and, and ex, uh, talking about evidences of, of God's grace in their life. Or we can do that in, in sharing how God is at work in our own life. One of the chief ways that we do that every single time we gather is by singing. It's what we do when we sing. We proclaim thanksgiving aloud. We tell what God has done. And when we do that, it knits the truths of God's word into our hearts. Singing glorifies God and it builds one another up. And so what we sing matters. The content of the songs that we sing matters. They should be proclaiming thanksgiving they should be telling of all of God's wondrous deeds. But also the way we sing matters very much. I encourage you, friends, to sing with vigor and a smile. Sing with vigor and a smile. I, I don't give a lot of guarantees. I guarantee it will help you and it will help those around you. I guarantee it. And I know it may feel uncomfortable. I'm not a great singer. I know singing out loud can be intimidating. But I want this for your good. Imagine if we all went for it. It wouldn't be uncomfortable. I've thought often about it. It feels very pragmatic. But what if we just all challenge each other? Let's sing this next song without screaming, but as loud as we can. None of us will be embarrassed because we'll all be embarrassed. And it, oh, it would be so encouraging. Proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling of your wondrous deeds. I love music. I love all types of music. But if I'm honest with myself, there is no music in my mind more beautiful than a bunch of Christians belting out their hope. Whether it's in the right key or not, there is not much sweeter this side of heaven than gathering with an assembly of believers and proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, telling of all of God's wondrous deeds in song. And so let's be that church. Let's not settle for being content to mumble the life-saving, glorious truths that we get to sing every Sunday. 
We see too in verse 8 that David loves the place where God's glory dwells. A couple Sundays ago, Josiah preached Psalm 24, which walked us through uh, really a highlight of the whole story of the Bible, of, of God making a way for his people to again dwell with him, just like uh, he had created things to be in Eden. And so whether that was through Eden or then uh, Sinai when God came to dwell with his people, the tabernacle when, when God's glory dwelt there, and then eventually the temple, seeing this ark all the way through scripture. And as Josiah talked about, uh, that culminates beautifully. It shows that all these other ways paled in comparison to when Jesus would come. We see this in John chapter 1, John 1, 14. And the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so how do we today do what David's talking about, of loving the place where God's glory dwells? Well, first we do that by staring at Christ. It is in Christ that God's glory dwells. And there's more. How do we apply this? Well, where else, where does God's glory dwell? Well, we said in Christ. And so we do this in part by loving the church. The church is consistently and frequently in the New Testament referred to as the body of Christ. As the temple of the Holy Spirit that we as Christians indwelt by the Holy Spirit are stones built together to be this temple. And so this isn't a question about ritual. It's not just like a replacement of the temple, that it's a, a place that we physically gather, uh, and then that's all it is. But if Christ's body is the church, his spirit dwells in all Christians, well, that's how we love the place that God's glory dwells. God has seen fit to design the church to be a, a place that displays his glory to the world. He does this through Christians living together in patience and Forgiveness and justice and mercy and love. God's manifold wisdom is on display in and through the church. And so we cannot read the New Testament and create a category for a churchless Christianity. Loving the church isn't simply consuming uh, things that the church gives us. It is being the church. If we try to say that being a meaningful member of a church is optional, we are forced to throw away huge amounts of the New Testament. It becomes impossible to live out these commands if we dismember ourselves from the local church. And so a huge part of how we pursue holiness today is by loving the place where God's glory dwells, being devoted to God and his people, and that is the church. And finally, one author compared pursuing holiness in Psalm 26 to uh, those who face addiction and are taking steps in recovery. Often, if you're taking steps in recovery, uh, you'll be encouraged to make a change to your patterns, your people, and your places. You need to make a change to your patterns and your people and your places. And this is exactly what David does here in Psalm 26. He is devoted to a pattern of life now that involves walking in integrity. He is wisely avoiding people who have a negative influence on him. And instead of loving their assemblies, like we see in verse 5, he loves the place where God's glory dwells in verse 8. We need to make a change to the patterns, people, and places in our lives as we pursue holiness. And so whatever storms in life come, 
We need to be intentional, to be set apart, to be holy, to glorify God by pursuing holiness. When life is unstable, pursue holiness. And then finally, lesson number three, when life is unstable, find your footing in God's grace. When life is unstable, find your footing in God's grace. David concludes by contrasting two ways to live. The first way we see in verses 9 and 10, the second way in verses 11 and 12. Verses 9 and 10, so way number one. Do not sweep away my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. So that's, that's one way to live, being swept away. And way two is verses 11 and 12. But as for me, contrast, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless Yahweh. So swept away or standing on level ground. Based on your life, based on the way you've lived this week, based on the way you've lived today, which one do you deserve? Me too. We all deserve to be swept away. We all have the same answer to those questions. No one is righteous. No, not one. Our best works are like filthy rags. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we measured uh, based on the standard of our life and our merit alone, we all deserve to be in verses 9 and 10. This is because God's standard is perfection. Because God himself is perfect. He is holy, perfectly holy. He is perfectly set apart. And he is perfectly just. God would be unjust to let sins go unpunished. But if we think of that as an earthly judge, think of an earthly judge who just lets people go willy-nilly. Uh, yeah, sure, you can, you, you can have another kick at the can. We would say that's a bad judge, right? He is unjust. Well, God is just. And that may trouble us. We may think we prefer the idea of a God who sweeps things under the rug. But this is not the God that we want or need. How can we pray for vindication if we think of God as this God who sweeps things under the rug? There would be no justice. But I want you to hear this very clearly. That God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful. Don't miss that. He is perfectly just and perfectly merciful. The story of the Bible is a story of redemption. A story of rescue. We see that word redeem, redemption in verse 11. Redemption. That's the hope we have, and that's the hope that David has as he goes through this psalm. In each section, he grounds his hope in God. We see that. He prays for vindication, and where does he ground that hope? He says, I want to keep your steadfast love before my eyes. So he's grounding his hope in God's covenant faithfulness. Then the next section, he's, he's turning from, wickedness, uh, uh, from wickedness, but he's proclaiming the things that God has done, God's redeeming work. Then it says he's going to walk in integrity in the end, but where is that grounded? It's grounded in God's redemption and grace. We see that in verse 11. And we can feel crushed by the thought of standing under God's scrutiny. And it can feel rightly crushing because on our merit, we deserve to be swept away. Our feet are not firmly planted. We are slipping and sliding on the black ice of living in a fallen world. 
But the Bible is good news for those whose feet are prone to slip. Because God knows our weakness. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to live a sinless life. We can look through and see the way Jesus perfectly fulfills Psalm 26. Nobody deserved vindication like Jesus. No one walked perfectly in integrity like Jesus. No one trusted God better than Jesus. No one was unwavering like Jesus. Jesus was proven, tested, and tried, and he never buckled. Jesus perfectly kept Yahweh's steadfast love before him. Jesus flawlessly walked in God's faithfulness. Jesus never let himself be tainted by wickedness or defiled, be defiled by sin. Jesus himself took on flesh and dwelt among us, embodying the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yet in all of his perfection, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, a horrific death. And in his death, not just physical pain, not just physical suffering, not just physical death, all of those wicked, sinful, embarrassing, shameful, sick things that are displayed on that screen of your life fell completely on Christ. So that the condemnation that you deserve, if you trust in Christ alone, would fall completely on him. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus would die for the sins of all those who would trust in him. And he rose from the dead in victory, defeating death and making a way for us to be made right with God. The sin that threatens to ingrain itself into the very fabric of our lives would be paid for completely by him. Don't miss this. This is how you and I can stand on level ground. It's only by the merits of and righteousness of Christ. And we all face these two ways to live. Will you stay in rebellion against God and try to run life your own way? Or will you turn to God, asking for forgiveness, trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life? There is no other way. There is no in-between option. It's how we can know peace with God. It's how we can, even now, stand in the great assembly and bless Yahweh, which is only a foretaste of what we will do for eternity. Psalm 26 teaches us that we will face times of instability, and it teaches us how to respond. When I was sliding sideways in that fire truck and we eventually came to the stop, the road never ceased to be icy when we started up again. The circumstances didn't change, but my approach to the circumstances certainly changed. I now knew what, what it felt like to be destabilized. This is what Psalm 26 teaches us. It doesn't teach us that your circumstances are going to all of a sudden get better when you feel like you're standing on slippery ground. But it does teach us to approach things differently. Because in these destabilizing circumstances of life, we need to pray to God for vindication. 
When life is unstable, you need to pursue holiness. And when life is unstable, remember the gospel. Find your sure footing in God's grace. Find your sure footing on the level ground of Christ and Christ alone. Thanks be to God that he made a way. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that your word shows us what we already know, that our feet are prone to slip, our knees are quick to buckle, but you have made a way for us to stand on level ground. God, help us every single day to preach the gospel to ourselves and remember the level ground that we stand on only by the merits of Christ. God, if there's anyone here who does not know this hope, work in their heart that they would know there is a better way. There is level ground to stand on. And God, as we share in the Lord's Supper together, help us to joyfully Proclaim the hope we have in Christ, the level ground on which we stand. We thank you for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.